Open up your Bibles this morning to Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17. As you do so, let's pause and ask the Lord's help this morning. And the children can be dismissed for Children's Church at this time. Let's pray. Father, help us this morning as we look again at this 17th chapter of Acts. Help us, Lord, to see you in a a new and glorious way. Take us deep into this text and let us leave here with a greater glimpse of your glory and of who you are. Father, once again, we always pray for people to be converted, for people to be born again, even under the sound of preaching. We pray that your word would do its work as you have promised to awaken the hearts of men and women to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Help us now, Lord, in your name. Amen. Last week, we saw Paul arrive in the city of Athens. This is Athens, Greece. He's been making his way throughout the world on his second missionary journey, traveling around Asia Minor and Israel, and now he's come into Europe, into the country of Greece, and he's preaching the gospel, and he's pointing the hearts of men and women towards the Messiah, who is Jesus Christ. He goes into the synagogues first, and he proclaims to them from the Old Testament scriptures, and then he also is preaching to Gentiles, the Greeks, of who this Jesus is. Last week we saw when Paul arrived into Athens, he was deeply disturbed by what he saw. For the city was full of idols. These people who lived in Athens worshipped anything and everything. They were a very philosophical people. This is the town of Aristotle and, 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 and Socrates. And they were encaptured by ideas and Uh, wisdom of men and searching out new things. But Paul got there and saw the idolatry and was deeply burdened by what he saw. Somebody has once said that it would probably be easier to find a God in Athens than a real man. And that's probably very true. Paul was burdened for two reasons. One, he saw the glory of God being violated by the worship of these idols. And he also saw the lostness of the city, how the hearts of men and women are far from God. So he begins to witnessing to the Jews in the synagogue, as he always does. And then he goes to the marketplace to worship to the Athenians. It is here where people are intrigued by what Paul is saying. This is something new, this resurrection. What is this about? That Jesus resurrected from the dead tell us more so they take him to this rocky hill called the Areopagus. it's also called mars hill here's a picture of it as it stands today mars hill is still in athens greece it's a rocky hill and it overlook uh, the down below would have been the marketplace where paul was sharing christ there It was down there where the city was full of idols and the exchange of ideas were to come. It was up on this hill that in Athens they had a court. And it was in this court that they would decipher and make decisions on new philosophies and new ideas and religions that would come to them. To see if they were going to erect another idol to worship that God as well. And it is from this very hill, from this very picture, this place takes The events of Acts 17. This is a real place. If you were to visit Athens, you could walk there. If anybody wants to fund a trip for me to go there, I wouldn't argue with you at all. But that's okay. Acts chapter 17. It's so amazing to see the real places and the pictures pictured here to show us the context of what we're going to read. So as we read the scripture, picture Paul on this rocky hill speaking this message. Let's go to verse 22 of Acts 17. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Oropagus, that's that rocky hill, says, Men of Athens, I perceive that in 
every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, Paul tells them, and he, they probably take it as a compliment. You are a very religious people. Again, the city was filled with idols. Here's the thing that we must remember. Everyone worships. You don't have to be a Jew or a Christian to worship. Everyone is born a worshiper. You were designed that way by God. The, the fact that we worship should not surprise anyone. If you go to the heart of the jungle and meet tribal people who have no access to any kind of civilization, you find that they also worship the gods that they have invented, whether it be of the sun or the moon or the sky. We are built, built within us, in our very DNA, is the action of worship. We were made for something greater than ourselves. You may not be a part of a church or a denomination or other religion, but you are indeed religious as well. Just like these Athenians were, worshiping any god that would come their way. Yes, even atheists are worshipers. Atheists may deny the existence of God, but they worship whether it be nature or people or possessions, we are made to give our all and our devotion to something or someone, and we will, even if it is us. Probably one of the greatest religions of the day is humanism and secularism invading the hearts of men and women. We see this in the halls of Congress down to school boards and our local neighborhoods. As we said last week, there's no greater idol in the world that's worshiped than self. Paul comes in and he says, I see that you are very religious. Now for them, they probably took that as a compliment. Well, thank you. You know, we're a very sophisticated people. We're very tolerable to all kinds of ideas and religions. But of course, Paul's not meaning it as a compliment, is he? He says, I've passed and seen the objects of your worship. Notice he didn't see, say, I, I saw your gods that you worship. He says, I observed the objects of your worship. Because these objects, these idols, these statues of gold or silver or stone are just material. They don't represent real gods. They worship lies. He says, I have observed you are religious people who worship. And then Paul also says this, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. Paul notices that there's a statue in town with an, on top of an altar and there's an inscription there and it says to the unknown God. They have every God imaginable in this city. But just in case they forgot one, just in case, lest they have judgment come upon them for not worshiping the God that they may not have known about, they put up a statue and call it the unknown God. The word unknown there is, comes from our, our, our English word agnostic, which basically means you can't know. That's what an agnostic is. An atheist is someone who denies God's existence. An agnostic is one who doesn't know if God exists. To the unknown God, these people have a fear of missing out. Just in case we forgot one, let's worship someone we'll call unknown. And ben, but Paul will use this as a bridge to share about the true God. The God that they don't worship yet is, in fact, the true God of the universe. It's the God of Israel. It's the God of creation, as we will see. Paul is going to deconstruct their polytheistic worldview. That means polytheistic means they worship more than one God. And introduce monotheism. That means one God. 
They, they're polytheists, worship many gods, but now monotheism, they will worship one God because that's who the true God is. The true God is to be worshiped alone and his glory is not to be shared with anything or anyone. Paul's also going to show them the glory of this God. And he's going to compare the glory of the true God to their false gods, lowercase g. And then at the end, and we'll see this next week, he will call them to repentance. There's, here's the evidence, here's the argument. And what is Paul's mission in all of this? You must repent. And we'll see that. Let's, let's work our way through these verses. What is Paul's argument? Look at verse 24. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by men. You will notice a difference in how Paul evangelizes these people. You know, with the Jews, he always does the same thing. He'll go into the synagogue on the Sabbath day. He'll open up the scriptures and he'll reason with them from there. The Jews, these are their scriptures. They know it. Now he's just trying to prove that Jesus is, in fact, the one that the Old Testament scriptures proclaimed. But with these Gentiles here in Athens, he doesn't do that. Why? The Old Testament scriptures are meaningless to them. They don't consider them to be authoritative at all. So Paul has to start from really ground zero. He has to start from a different foundation. And what does he do? He takes them to creation. The God who made the world and everything in it. This is a model that even missionaries today use when they encounter a tribal people. A tribal people, whether it be in the jungles of Africa or the Amazon, they start with creation. That there is a creator that they are accountable to. The concept of God as absolute creator would not have been easy for these people to understand. Remember, Paul is dealing with two different types of people here. There's the Epicureans and the Stoics that are listening to him speak on this hill. The Epicureans believed that matter was eternal and therefore had no creator. There was no creator. Everything you see has always been here and there always will be here. The Stoics believed in pantheism, which basically means that God was a part of everything and could not have created himself, so nothing is created. So here's Paul coming in. And destroying the foundation of their beliefs by saying that there is a God. This unknown God that you don't know about. He is in fact the creator of everything that you see. These people believe that divinity was to be found in the heavens, in nature, and in humanity. We see that today, don't we? We have astrology that worships the heavens and the stars and the signs. We have people worshiping nature, extreme environmentalists. We have people who worship humanity, humanism as being God. You see, the devil doesn't change his tricks, does he? It's always the same lies again and again and again. It's just regurgitated for a new generation with a fresh coat of paint. But where does Paul begin? Even though he doesn't use the Old Testament, he is speaking Old Testament truth, isn't he? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This is something that these people could not have grasped. But this unknown God is so great. He's greater than all. Any of these other gods that you worship, because you believe that none of these gods made anything. My God made it all. And if he has, then you must listen to him. This is Paul's argument. This is where it's leading towards. And the other thing that Paul will do as we go through this text 
is that he will, he is also setting up the argument that Jesus, the one who rose from the dead, is this God. That he is God in human form. He has come to this earth for a reason and a mission, but he is, in fact, all that Paul is proclaiming here. As we see in the, Old, in the New Testament, Jesus is the creator. Jesus is the creator. He, the one who rises from the dead is also the one who has made it all. This is what the book of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 1. Long ago and at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. You see, Paul is setting them up. When he gets to the end and tells them who this God is, this unknown God has a name, and his name is Jesus. He rose again from the dead, and he also created everything you see. He continues by saying that he is not only the creator of the world and everything in it. See, God is not in creation. He made creation. Matter is not eternal. It has a beginning. But he also says, being the Lord of heaven and earth. Because this God created it all, He owns it all. He owns it all. He's in charge of it all. He just didn't create the world, set it to spin, and then left it to its own destruction. The God who made it owns it. And he owns it in the the way that he is Lord of heaven and earth. He's Lord of the ground and he's God of the sky. As far as you can see the stars and the planets and the galaxies, this is what he's speaking of. He's Lord of heaven and earth. He made it all and it all is his. Again, Paul doesn't quote the Old Testament, but he's speaking Old Testament truth. Psalm 24, 1 and 2 says this, the earth is the Lord's. It doesn't belong to anyone but him. And the fullness thereof, everything in the world belongs to God. The world and those who dwell therein. God owns the people of the world. Why? For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Now think of the the rebellion That the God who made gold and silver and stone, the God who made the people on this earth, is now subject, subjected to their rebellion. He's witnessing the rebellion. The God who made gold and silver or stone is now being turned into idols by these very people whom he created. That's rebellion, that's sin. Deuteronomy 10, chapter 14. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth with all that is in it. Again, he is creator. He is the Lord. He is the Lord of heaven and earth. He's speaking to this court on this hill and to all these people listening. This unknown God is way more important than you think he is. I know you put up a statue and an altar just in case you didn't make him mad. And this way he would forgive you in case you made him mad. And hey, you know, we got you a statue too. No. He is far greater than that. He's more glorious than that. And you owe him everything because of who he is. He's the creator. He is the Lord He owns it all. Anything that we possess in this life, we're just borrowing it. We're stewards managing God's resources. Everything we possess in this world, our money, our possessions, our homes, it all belongs to the Lord. And then he says this. This God, this unknown God, 
does not live in temples made by man. He does not live in temples made by man. What is, what is he trying to say here in Acts 17, 24? Paul is about to unravel for us some of God's attributes. What are attributes? The attributes of God are the characteristics of God. They are what make God, God. It's what we must know if we are to know God. God has special characteristics and attributes that no one else has but him. This is such an important topic that we must all know. And we've put attributes of God in the bulletin before and we've said it before the service and stuff like that. I've begun a study on the attributes of God and Lord willing, that'll be the next book that comes out later this year. The attributes of God. But this is what Paul's about to look at here. In verse 24, he says, this God, this unknown God, does not live in temples made by man. What does that mean? You can't contain him. God is not trapped in some building that you made for him. Or in their case, God is not trapped in the statue you made of him. God has no limits. He cannot be stopped. He cannot be limited. He cannot be contained your God who is trapped in that wood or gold or silver thing is trapped but the true God is not he is the living God he's made it all and he's bigger than it all and you cannot contain him these are the attributes of God's infinity meaning there's no end to God we know these things as God is omnipresent, which means that God is everywhere at the same time. There is nowhere where God is not. What he's trying to say is, in order for you to worship that God, you got to go to that part of the marketplace, sit down in front of him, bow down, because that God is there in that statue. But the true God, he's not contained like that. He's not held back by your design. Even Israel who had the temple of God, who God told them to build. The temple of God. God was not contained in that temple. God didn't need that house. God's glory rested there with his people to make himself known. But that's not all who God is in that one location. The Bible says that God is omnipresent. There is nowhere in this universe you can go where God is. Is not, isn't that, isn't that a comforting thing? When you feel alone, when you feel betrayed, when you feel like no one cares, you can never be in a place where God is not. Never forget that. This is what David says in Psalm 139. Again, Paul's not quoting Old Testament, but he's bringing Old Testament truths in front of these people. Psalm 139, what does David say? Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? David's saying, I can't get away from you. Everywhere I go, God, you're there. If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, that's the grave, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. Oh, God is infinite in space. Space does not contain God. The God created space. He created dimensions, and he's not limited by them. God is outside of time. God is not limited by space. He's also not limited by time. You and I are creatures of space and time. I can only be at this place at this time, at 1138 in Bradenton, Florida. Right here, Dan will be nowhere else except at this time and at this place. If you come tomorrow at this time, I, I won't be here, standing up here. Only one place at one time. 
But God is outside of time. He's outside of space, let alone a little statue. Here he is saying, your gods are tiny. Your gods are small. The real God is so much more glorious than that. We also see God's infinity by seeing his omniscience. There's not only no limit to his presence, there's also no limit to his knowledge. It's what the word omniscience mean. Omni means all, and science means knowledge. It's what science means, by the way, knowledge. Omniscience, it's all knowledge. God knows everything about everything. There's nothing that God does not know. There are no mysteries to God. There's not something God is learning. There's not an improved God 20 years from now because God has had 20 more years to learn things. God knows everything about everything. There's nothing he does not know. Even the things that you and I do in secret that we think that other people don't know, God already knows. We also see God's infinity by seeing his omnipotence. Omni means all and the, um, potent means power. Omnipotence, the God is omnipotent, which means what? The God is all powerful. He is El Shaddai, the almighty God. There's no limit to his power. There's, there's nothing that's impossible for God. That statue there? Yeah. You had to carry it to its location, didn't you? Mm-hmm. Look at verse 25. Paul brings up another attribute of God here. In verse 25, he says, Nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. God is not only infinite, meaning he's not limited to the things that these idols that you worship are, but God is self-sufficient. This is the attribute of God's independence. In fact, God is the only independent being in the universe. And you may say, Dan, have you met my wife? Have you met my husband? There's a lot of independent people in the world. True, but that, not this kind of independence. Because everyone who has ever been born has been dependent on someone or something. We're all born babies, right? We weren't going to feed ourselves. We weren't going to clean ourselves. We needed someone to teach us. We grow up, we're dependent upon other beings. God has never had a dependent day in his life. He's the only self-sufficient being in the world, in the universe. No one has ever made God. God was never born. He was never created. He always has been. You needed someone to make you. Right? You needed, you needed your parents to get together so that you could come into this world. And even that was a part of the providence and design of God. You have a birthday. And you have a day of your death. But God is eternal. He has no beginning. He has no ending. He doesn't need us or anything. He always has been and he will forever be. Here's Paul saying, nor is he served by human hands. How did your idols come into being? You took that gold and you melted it down and you formed it into a statue just how you imagined that God. That God that you worship only exists by the fashioning of your hands in your imagination. That God has a beginning. That God has a design from you. But the true God... This unknown God, he's not served by human hands. He doesn't need you to exist. He doesn't need you to be here. You had to carry your gods to their places on these altars. 
And then Paul says, as though he needed anything. God doesn't tire or slumber. God isn't bothered. Sometimes I hear people, well, I have things to pray for, but I don't want to bother God. As if you could bother him. As if you were wasting his time. God doesn't need anything. Since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. We are the dependent ones upon him. He is not dependent upon us. Your idols are made by you. Your idols wouldn't be here unless you made them. They are needy. If your idols fall off the pedestal, they can't pick themselves back up and get up there. You're not independent. You're dependent. You're not self-sufficient. You need God. You need people around you to live your life. For everything you have has been given to you by God. The life that makes you live, God. The breath you just breathed, God. The talents that you possess, God. The time that you have during the week, given to you by God. And the treasure you possess, God. We're all dependent on our bosses to pay us our paycheck, aren't we? We can do the work, but we need him to come through. Not God. The one who created it all, owns it all, and doesn't need anything. He is self-sufficient. Paul encapsulates this truth in Jesus. Again, remember, that's where he's going. This is who the unknown God is, but I'm about to give you his name at the end. He died and rose again. This God is self-sufficient. This is who he said Jesus was in Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 and 20 through 20, that beautiful hymn. He is the image of the invisible God, speaking of Jesus, the firstborn of all creation, for by him All things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Only Jesus can say such things, because Jesus is God, and therefore possesses all of the attributes of God, including self-sufficiency. Let's look at verse 26. Paul gives us another attribute of God here. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. Here, Paul introduces them to the attribute of God's sovereignty. This unknown God is sovereign. What does that mean? He's in charge of it all. He rules it all. Everything happens by the will of God. Nothing. There is not a renegade molecule, as R.C. Sproul used to say. There's not a maverick molecule in the entire universe that is apart from the sovereign hand of God. It is God who brought the human race into existence. And he did this all from one man. He says, from one man... Every nation of mankind was pleased. Again, he's not quoting Old Testament scripture, but what's he talking about here? Genesis. God created Adam and Eve. Everyone comes from Adam and Eve. There is one man came every nation of mankind. By the way, don't you let anyone lie to you to tell you that there is more than one human race. There is one race. It's called human there's not black and white and, and Asian and Latin or Spanish. 
There is one race. We are all human, all created in the image of God. These are all lies to divide us and to separate us and to cause divisions among us when we say we belong to different races. That's foolish. One man, every nation of mankind, to live on the face of the earth. Who decided that? God did. God created Adam. God created Eve. And it is through them that we all are here. And God is sovereign over that. And then he says this, listening, listen to this. Having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, God is so sovereign that it is he who decides when you are born. God determined when you would be born. Think about that. For me, January 3rd, 1977. Not 1877. Not 77. Not 5,000 B. Why that day? Because the sovereign God of the universe said so. That day. God is sovereign over that. God is sovereign. And many, many of you know my story. I'm here, and the sovereignty of God is a major proof of it. My mother was a runaway girl who ran to Miami, met a man in a shelter, and became pregnant from New Jersey to Miami. And God planned it from the beginning of time. Amazing. You think of the sovereignty of God. You think of how your parents met, how your, their parents' parents met. God determined the allotted periods, not only when we would be born, but when we would die. God knows the day of your death. And nothing's going to change it until God says so. He is sovereign over time. He is sovereign over when we live and where we live. Look at this. And the boundaries of their dwelling place. God sovereignly chose your address. Think about that. Not only when you would live, but where you would live. He is sovereign over that. From eternity past, for me, when I was eight years old, I lived at 974 Linden Avenue, Brick Township, New Jersey. God planned that. Why? Because it was there that my neighbor girl, a neighbor girl who invited me to her church to hear the gospel. God planned that. God knew when I was going to be born, where I was living. Why? So that Dan could hear the gospel. God, from one man made everyone, is sovereign over when they live, where they live, when they die. You're saying, well, my realtor showed me that house. No, my parents moved there. I've always lived in Bradenton. It's all God. This is the attribute of God's sovereignty. Psalm 115.3 says, our God is in the heavens. And he does all that he pleases. Whatever God pleases, he does. Period. God tells Israel through the prophet Isaiah, remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done saying, my counsel shall stand. I will accomplish all my purpose. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country. I have spoken. I will bring it to pass. I have purposed. I will do it. If that isn't convincing you of God's sovereignty, I don't know what will. God has planned it all. God sees it all. He sustains us all. God is telling a story. He's telling a story from the very first second that ticked off the clock till now. He's telling us a story. We're a part of his story. We're characters in this story. 
We're responsible to him. We're accountable. This is what Paul is trying to say. This unknown God, oh, he's far greater than the statues you worship. He is sovereign over everything, including your birthday and your address. And what is the point of that? Look at verse 27. Why is God sovereign over when and where we live? Look at verse 27. That they should seek God. That's why. God wants you to know him. God wants you to know him. That's why he's put you around the people you have been born into and born around and where you live. And even greater than that, if you're already a Christian, that's where God has you in your neighborhood. God has sovereignly placed you there to be an ambassador and a representative for him. God has allowed the people who live around you to be born so that they would live about the same period you would live. So that we could proclaim to them the glories of Jesus Christ. This is the sovereign God and this is how he works. What a masterpiece of a story this all is. That they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he's actually not far from each one of us. This seeking God applies a groping around in the darkness. That's how men and women are born. They're born in darkness. They don't know where the light is. But God is near. The truth is heard. The gospel is being proclaimed. And today, greater than any other day in history, with the invention of all this modern technology, the television, the internet, the printing press, the gospel has reached the entire world. And there's some, still some places where we still have to hit home and get into. But think of the day that we live in. Do you think we're near to the time of his coming? Now that the whole world has access to the gospel, it's amazing. Amazing. He's not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, he says. As some of your own prophets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Now, here, again, he doesn't quote the Old Testament. What he does here is he quotes one of their own prophet, poets. He quotes one of the own people that they would know. One of the people who actually spoke truth, although they were full of lies, part of their message was truthful. This God, in him we live and move and have our being. And we are his offspring. This is a, one of their prophets named Epimenides that all these people would have known. Paul here quotes Epimenides so that they would hear a little bit of truth in Epimenides, even though Epimenides didn't know he was speaking truth. He takes a little bit of the truth, he contextualizes it for his audience, and then he brings it home to Christ. In him we live and move and have our being. We are his offspring. And look at verse 29. Being then God's offspring... We ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. If you are God's offspring, meaning God created you, and we all know that God created you in his image, if God created you in his image, what makes you think that God is like gold, silver, or stone? Just look at you. Look at your body. Look how you are. Not only on the physical attributes you possess, but the internal attributes you possess. Everything about you has a stamp of God upon your soul. Everything. This is why murder and taking of a human life is wrong. This is why slaughtering unborn babies in their mother's womb is wrong. Because every person is born with dignity and worth because they're image bearers of the God who made them. We are his offspring. God has made us like himself, although we're not God. 
These idols that you worship out of your own imaginations don't even come close to the truth. Our God is different from these idols. He brings up the last attribute here. God is holy. God is different. The word holiness means to be set apart, different, unique. That's what the word holy means. Pure, righteous, different. He's cut from a different cloth. The Hebrew has a different way of saying that. The word holy, the root word of holy. He's cut from a different cloth. He's not like the others. God is holy and he must be worshipped as so. So Paul's message, you worship the unknown God. I'm telling you who this God is. And he's the only one that exists. He's the only true God. And you are accountable to him. He's far greater than anything your own imagination can spin. He's far greater than anything your own human hands can fashion from wood or stone or gold. You worship him or else. To not worship this God in the way he has commanded you to worship him is to face his judgment and wrath and to be held accountable for your own sin. This is why he says in verse 30, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. This is where Paul's going. This is who this unknown God is. Now you must answer to him. You must turn from your wicked ways of serving these idols, serving these fake gods, and turn to him alone. And how do you do that? Through Jesus Christ. On Easter morning next week, we will look at how Paul brings it home. He set the stage, and now he's calling them to a decision. The only way to worship this unknown God is by how he has chosen to make himself known. How has God chosen to make himself known? I'll tell you how. This God became a man. And he lived in our place. He walked in your shoes. He breathed the same air you breathe. He never sinned. He obeyed God 100%. And then they killed him. But even their killing him was a part of God's sovereign plan to offer him up as a sacrifice for men and women who are under his judgment. And instead of God judging them, he has judged Jesus, so that when men and women place their faith in Jesus, God does not judge them, he judges him. And because he has judged him and has found him innocent, he then sets men and women who put their faith in him free. Men and women must believe that Jesus died on the cross for their sins and rose again from the dead on the third day. This is how you worship this unknown God. Put these idols away and run to the truth. What a sermon on Mars Hill. What a, oh man. I would love to be there today, of course, but I would love to have been there then to see the looks on their faces, to see what God is doing in them. And here we see as the gospel has borne fruit in Jerusalem and in Antioch, and in Berea and Thessalonica, the gospel is about to bear fruit in Athens, Greece. May you repent of your sins and trust in Christ alone for salvation, for it is only by his grace that you can be saved. Let's pray. Oh, Father, help us. 
Help us to look within. As Paul beautifully showed us who you are in this message to those who listened on Mars Hill. People are no different. The same people that Paul preached to back then, he could preach to today. The hearts of men and women who are filled with idols and sin, and worship of themselves and worship of other things. Father, help us to repent. Draw people close to yourself. For it is only in Christ and Christ alone that salvation is found. That a relationship with God is found. May people repent of their sins and turn to God through Jesus Christ. For those believers in here, Lord, may we glory in this glimpse of your attributes that Paul has given to us. How that you're the creator, how that you're the Lord, how you're infinite and self-sufficient and sovereign, holy. Oh, Lord, may your people know who you are. May we not be guilty of that. May we study your word day in and day out and treasure you, worship you. And Lord, may we have the boldness of Paul to stand up on our own Mars Hill to speak the truth in a way that the people will understand like Paul did here so that they can put their faith in Jesus Christ and be saved. Help us now, Lord, as we sing this hymn and as we go on our way, as we prepare for this week, as we remember the death and resurrection of Jesus, Good Friday and resurrection morning to come. Help us, Lord, in your name. Amen. Let's all stand and sing a closing hymn as we're dismissed this morning. If I could help you in any way, please see me after the service. If you'd like to know who this Jesus is and put your faith in him, I'd love to spend some time with you this afternoon and share this gospel with you. Let's sing.